3D6 Down the Line. Hey everyone, welcome back to 3D6 Down the Line. We have a special treat for you this evening. We've got another Tack On Effects. This time we're going to be focusing on player mapping. And I brought none other than our cartographer extraordinaire, one Ted. Hello, Ted. John, lovely to see you this evening. You know, I was just thinking about maps, John. Look at that map. That is fabulous. Coincidence. Would that happen we, to be the map of Middle Earth, Ted? Why? Well, I do believe it is. <laughs> and look, everything's there. The rivers, the mountains, the forests, the good guys and the bad guys. It has all the features, all the tasty trimmings of a classic fantasy map. Well, that if anyone knew what he was doing, it would be that man. My goodness, yes. Hi, John. I would love to talk about maps with you. Excellent. I can tell you you dressed appropriately for the occasion. This is a serious subject. Serious subject. Indeed. So, Gabriano understands how serious it is, and I do too. <laughs> so we um, we have gotten a number of requests and comments uh, throughout the uh, couple of years that we've been doing in the Halls of Art and Bull now. Or I guess it's a little over a year. Um, and people have always remarked upon the fact that we do player mapping. And that is not something that you see a lot of, at least on an actual play series. I, I, I feel that I'm pretty confident in saying that. Um, and I feel it's also probably a kind of a lost art in modern day role playing games. Uh, may or, you know, I'm not completely clued into exactly what everyone's doing on their own private tables, but um, I feel with like mainstream games that that is sort of not the case anymore. And especially after the the pandemic where um we saw the rise of people going online and using vtt's a lot more than they were in the past that the general default is is you have a pre-made map and if you don't want players to know about it you put fog of war over it, and then as players explore on the grid they you slowly reveal the map to them as they explore which is a totally viable way of playing the game um and when and i had a lot of fun doing that yeah yeah absolutely like, and, thing. like it was good stuff and there are certain games where I feel that that's the best use of, of that, like where you wouldn't even bother player mapping. But although I do feel strongly that should you adopt player mapping, that you can actually um, put it to use in a, a wide variety of games. It's not necessarily only yeah. for old school play. It, it's an element of old school play, oh, yeah. but but it, it can be yeah. lifted wholly out and dropped into any other exploratory exploration based RPG. I, I feel pretty strongly about that. Um, so yeah, when I, whenever I started Halls of Art and Vool, I was trying to go as old school as I possibly can. So I wanted to give the player mapping thing a try. Um, Ted was game for it, which was awesome. And, um, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Ted, but you, you drive a lot of satisfaction and enjoyment from it when we do it, right? I do. I actually drawing maps is probably my favorite part of gaming in general, in a lot of respects. I mean, like my own homebrew stuff, I love drawing my maps. Uh, so you know, I was all over it being the the, the semi-official cartographer. Matt has done a great job also. Mm -hmm, uh, so, um, but I, I, I do enjoy it. It, it And I I think that one of the things that I think is really great about it, and I, you, I think you were kind of getting at this, is that when you have, whether you're playing at, at the table or whether you're online, and the GM is providing like a pre-generated scene or map with fog of war or however it's done. It's all, you know, digital and printed out nice, whatever it is. Um, I think there ends up being a sort of a passivity on the part of the player. They just, right. they're just receiving information. I, I, right. I agree completely. Yeah. 
So I, when I'm mapping, I'm really processing information. I, I feel like it makes me more an active participant in the game. And then uh, we were talking about it the other day and David was saying, even though he's not mapping, having the party building the map up and looking at the map together makes everybody in the party more active, right? It's like yep. a group thing that we're focused around, Correct, which I think yeah. is totally legit. And I don't know if that was part of your intent, John, or if uh, it was just something we kind of discovered doing it. It wasn't. And that was one of the really cool side effects is one of the bonuses. I, I kind of anticipated if, if you guys were into it, what kind of effect it would have. But the fact that it actually increases the bonds amongst the players um, and uh, also increases the buy-in, uh, it, it engages, like you said, engage, it actively engages your imagination. Yeah. So instead of, like you said, like passively receiving information and ooing yeah. and aahing over it, and it's pretty cool and impressive, um, you can derive deep satisfaction that what you're looking at, whether it's actually a physical graph on the table or something that Ted has actually drawn out in, in a program um, is a work of art. It's something that's been, you know, sketched out. <laughs> oh, there are oh different levels, <laughs> but it is. It's something that you created. It, it, it's a creative work, yeah. I guess is the way I should yeah. put it, right? It is something that yeah. was, was not there prior. And then I conveyed information and then all of a sudden it just appears. And it is something that you're actively engaging with at all times, especially in a dungeon crawl, um, which yeah. is what we're using. So when the campaign is a mega dungeon, um, and everything is based upon that, then the map is of crucial importance. Oh my God. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, we've, I've been through dungeons. Okay. So we played Dolanwood. We did the winter's daughter, that tomb. We mapped it out as we went. Mm -hmm. We could have gotten along without that map. It was not that complicated dungeon, right? We could have yeah. remembered our way around and kind of spatially held it together in our minds, mm -hmm. but mapping it was, was fun. In Arden, little man, <laughs> we'd be so screwed. Oh yeah, if we weren't mapping. <laughs> it would just not even happen. We'd we'd all have died. Absolutely, because we'd have stumbled along some corridor. Like I don't know, let's go left, or you know. But I mean, you could uh, playing devil's advocate. We could do what a lot of people have done with Ardenville, which is where they've got the lovely VTT maps, and then you just throw them up, and then you do the fog of war, and you know, you know. But it's just it's not the same thing, right? There's a totally no, viable not. method of playing, but yeah. there's. There's a level of satisfaction that you're not getting when you're, yeah. when you're not mapping on your own. And yeah. I, I know a lot of people, too, might get shy about it because they feel like, I don't have any artistic skill, I can't draw. It doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter. Like, oh, I have zero. Matter. And when, I, when I'm a player in OSE games, I do my own mapping, and it's, yeah. it's fine. You know? And Ted is, has artistic skill, and Ted is also a stickler for detail as well. So you should also be aware that if you're a fan of our series and have been watching Ted map and how careful we are to get the dimensions right in every little bit, that is not necessary. You don't have to do that. Um, it's much, uh, it's, it's more about to give the players a sense of where they might be in their relationship to everything else around them and to be able to draw conclusions. And that yeah. does not require 100% accuracy. Um, in, in Ted fact, and I enjoy in, doing that, but I do like the accuracy, but in hole in the Oak, I mapped it like a flow chart. I didn't worry about distances exactly or dimensions of rooms. I just made a box that was a room and I knew that there was a corridor to the next room and I just did a flow chart of it and that worked just fine. Mm -hmm. And in fact, in some ways it, it, it was great. I didn't really worry too much about distance and size of the room. I needed a place to record notes about the teleport circle or the, this is where the, sure. we found the giant 
whatever it was like a Sturges or bees or something that stung one of the guys to death, you know, mm-hmm. Here, here's the ghouls that killed my character twice. <laughs> right. Exactly. And you don't need to know how many pillars were in the room or exactly. No, yeah. No. So that's a, that's actually a great point, Ted, is that um, in any, in any medium that you want on Miro on a whiteboard or in a VTT or on a physical graph paper, you don't have to actually map. You can do mind maps or web web. Um, what do you call yeah. the, web thingies you know um yeah i know what you're talking about yeah yeah the relationships uh, of things and connecting them up yeah yeah and that's all it really is it's all ba- basically yep. all these maps are just relationships to uh, spatial relationships is basically what you're looking yeah. at um and it's also deeply satisfying i think whenever you're drawing your own map and you notice an anomaly of sorts right like you notice like oh that looks suspiciously like a like like some negative space that probably shouldn't be negative right. space maybe we should search there yeah. right um, and it's always more fun to see that whenever you've drawn it and drawn the conclusion than it is whenever it's just revealed from fog of war. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. I also, I have to say, I know we've spent a lot of time trying to get dimensions exactly right. Um, but I'm certain that in most, in, in some cases, the rooms that I've drawn, cause you're like, eh, good enough. I know that it's not exactly, exactly how the map is. <laughs> yeah. Cause I so, think good enough. <laughs> and, right. So, so, but that's okay because I'm imagining, you know, and this is maybe getting a little, I'm going to near it out a little bit here, but like I'm imagining, you know, a little Mort creeping through the hallways with a piece of paper and a quill, you know, and he's like got an ink pot on his helmet and he's like trying to, you know, draw the map and stuff like that. It's yeah. not going to be accurate. He's not surveying. He's not running down, you know, measuring string and stamping chalk lines to see if things are level. Mm-hmm. He's just scrawling something and, you know, it doesn't have to be perfect. And if it's not perfect, it kind of adds as much as one can to a fantasy setting like Hart and Bull, a little verisimilitude. Yes, exactly. That was actually a good point, Ted, because I was actually going to bring this up and it's something that we don't do in our Arden Vool campaign, but I've, I've read a lot of anecdotes from the true old schoolers, like the actual ones that were around back in the day and probably still doing it to this day is mapping player mapping is actually supposed to be a reflection of your character in game, actually mapping. And it's part yeah. of the reason why dungeon exploration speeds are so slow is that yes. that's built in. Like it's also, it's the caution and the stealth and the try not to get eaten. But um, it's um, it's also assumed that one of your characters is actually physically mapping. Um, now, I, I haven't yeah. been that much of a hard ass on it. I kind <laughs> of feel- say. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I had a DM back in the day who, yeah. if you were drawing a map, it meant that character did not have a weapon in their hand. Right. Right. Or, or it would take it like, or if you walked into a room, I would, oh, I, I think what you're technically supposed to do, right. Or at least, um, the, the RAI, the rules as intended is that you're supposed to, as a, as a referee, when a, when the party enters into a new room, you give the overall without any math or anything like that, you just give the overall impression that the characters are getting from their five senses. And then if one of the characters who's a mapper actually says, I take a turn to survey and map the oh, room. Yeah. Then I remember that. Yeah. Then I would actually tell you, okay, then I would actually give you like it's 20 by 30 with this many pillars and blah, blah, blah. You know, um, it's just uh, something to think about. It's change how we're doing it now, but I do like that. Yeah. It's cool. That, it's, it's really cool. And I, cool, yeah. um, I suggest for anyone out there to give that a world and see how it works at your yeah. table. Um, cause it, like, like Ted said, it, it increases the verisimilitude in the immersion. Um, but yeah. I skip over it just for pacing sake really is all it is. Yeah. Um, we got a lot to do. Yeah, we got a lot to do. <laughs> now, the other huge benefit, and this can't be emphasized enough, is that it takes a huge burden off of me. It takes a huge burden off of referees. 
Oh, um, sure. Uh, as part of my OSR epiphany, I'm all about shedding responsibilities of the GM as much as possible. Um, and if there are certain required duties that can be shouldered onto the players, I do it. Um, yeah. And this is one of those things that you can do. Uh, if if I, I'm sure there are plenty of 5e referees listening to this and who have worked with VTTs and how much time and effort it takes to prep those maps, get them all exactly the way that you want them, um, and uh, only for your players to basically passively receive them, give you a nice compliment, and then move on, right? Well, you, this is a win-win situation. You don't have to do that. You can give it to your players to do, and your players will actually enjoy doing it. At least hope so it might not be for everybody but i love um, it i yeah. love it i i i have <laughs> now i think there's it's i'm stumbling over my words here mm -hmm. some of my love for it is you know inherent right some of it is that you're into it as well mm -hmm. I, I imagine there may be scenarios where players want to map and a gm is has a hard time explaining rooms or whatever you know i it, it's a learned skill is the thing yes um so and we've been John and I have been playing together a long time, you know. Uh, we've we've figured this out. We can do it. Yeah, we um, know our we know our love language. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's measured in feet, baby. No, but yeah, it's it, it's it's important to, to note though is that if you're once again, as we always preach all the time, this is a game to be played amongst friends in its most ideal state. Um, and this is one of those yeah. where it comes to the fore, where if you understand each other, if there's a um yeah. a tacit language between the two of you uh between all of you at the table um yeah this will go a lot easier it's not something that you would want to do like with strangers at a convention when you have a two-hour slot right <laughs> it's just well, it's you just... know i was just thinking that like we're going to gary con mm -hmm. well <laughs> god willing in the creek don't rise yeah. uh we're gonna be doing these short slots and what do you what would you do if i you're, don't you're running a session what I, are you gonna my, do my plan right now is actually we still got a lot of months, so I might, I might, these may change, yeah, but sure. I, I plan on maybe just leaving it up to the group, like having the materials there and the group votes that they want to play right. our map. Um, then they can, if not, uh, I'll just have maps ready. Not a big deal. This um, might be a great scenario. We're doing the like just spatial relationships and not getting into the nitty gritty of dimensions. Yeah. You know, room, corridor, trap, door. Totally. And that's all it needs Flow to be. It out it's fast. really all it needs to be. It's really yeah. about uh, the player skill. That's another aspect of it too. That's very OSR. Is that it's a test of player skill, right? Which is a huge part of, of any OSR playstyle. Um, is using not what uh, your character's intelligence is on the on the character sheet, but using your own intelligence and your own ability to draw yeah. maps. Um, that's a huge uh, plus as well. But um, this is a test of both referee and player skill and their their ability to communicate with each other. Communication is the key to good mapping and to keep up the pace so that everyone else isn't bored while this is happening. Um, so, yeah. Uh, so I just wanted to go over real quick if my recommendations, and if, Ted, if you have any as well, just let me know. Um, but what I use for physical graph paper when I play at my games uh, in in person is I use a big guy here. I don't know if you can see that, but it's quite large. It's 11 by 17. So right. it's it's twice the width of a of a typical letter sized piece of paper, uh, U.S. letter sized. So and that has four squares per inch, which is large enough to draw nitty gritty details and also take notes at the same time. I feel and but it's not too unwieldy. Um, and what's nice about those sheets is that you can take one, uh, game uh, map on it throughout the uh, throughout a game session. Have plenty of room to map basically anything that you need to map. 
which is really nice instead of like a little field notebooks, which you're not gonna be able to draw too much, um, has a, like a large space, but then you can just literally fold that in half and stick it into your folder. Right. And it'll fit perfectly. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I'll have a link for that, an Amazon link for that down below in the description, if you want to hit that. Um, but I've been using this for years and I, I love that graph paper. Um, I, I have often used the eight squares per inch, which is twice the detail on that one, which is tiny. great when you are, what's that? That's tiny. It's tiny. It's tiny. Well, I like to draw very small, tiny lines, but um, the eight squares per inch, you can easily, you know, just do two five foot squares, you know, and you got a 10 foot quarter oh. kind of thing. You're not like limited to uh, drawing tiny, but it does help when you're doing a five foot corridor or you maybe in advance, your GM tells you this is a really big dungeon. You're going to need a lot of map space, you know, rather than having two sheets, use a smaller one. It's personal preference, obviously. That's a very large piece of paper. It's probably not an issue most of the time. Yeah. Because I think most DMs, when they create their maps, are using an eight and a half by 11 piece of four squares per inch grid paper for drawing out the map. Very true. Like you do in study hall in high school and you'd be drawing (laughs) maps. Funny how all dungeons seem to be the same size. (laughs) It's weird. (laughs) Let me ask you this, Ted. Uh, What's your personal preference? Do you prefer to have grid lines or do you prefer points on your paper? Um. That's a good one. Um, I have done both and I find that I, I'm more freely creative on points mm-hmm. when I'm creating a map, but when I am, uh, this is for GMing, right? Like, so I'm creating a map. I like to do uh, points. Um, but having the grid there really makes it easy to communicate to players. And so as a player, when I'm mapping, I, I like to stick to the grid. Mm-hmm. rather than the, the dots but the dots is very creative open space you know you have a little bit of reference there to kind of keep straight lines and things but right you don't feel like constrained by the grid line so it's you better for mean? being like creative in your opinion uh, like when you're creating maps rather than yeah t- so taking when I've got what a notebook, yeah when i'm creating maps i've got a sketchbook that's in dots and i'll sketch stuff out right and then i'll transfer that to a grid line later and then it's easier to communicate to a player but yeah, as a player, I use the grid for sure. Gotcha. Um, for mapping. Yeah, that makes sense. Unless I'm doing the flowchart style, and then even just a blank piece of paper works fine. You don't need any straight lines on that. You just need to understand yeah. the relationship between rooms. Yeah, absolutely. When you're creating, and and to be clear too, we there are hundreds upon hundreds of great um, dungeon mapping creation videos on on youtube and tutorials by, oh yeah by people who are much smarter than we are um and who have a much larger viewer base for the most criminally okay, well, YouTube. <laughs> criminally 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 but this, um this video is going to be the thing that tips it right though john that's right? exactly this right the, this is going to put us over the top is, uh, but sweet what but Glad what we feel that has not been done a lot though i don't think there has there is a lot of videos or a lot of a lot of stuff written about actually in the moment dungeon mapping by players during a session there's plenty of stuff about how to create a cool dungeon for your players right and how to do that during gm prep and we're not talking about any gm prep whatsoever here we're talking about in the moment where the gm is referencing an already published um or or something that he's already created a dungeon of his own and then conveying that information to a player to then map it from scratch so um, that's what we're dealing with here um, in the interest of that. So that's the physical graph paper that uh, that I recommend. Um, as far as digitally, you guys have probably noticed that recently we, we switched over to a program called Miro, which is not a VTT. It is a online whiteboard app that is used for any number of functions, but it's mostly a business-related app um, for... Um, 
uh, there's a fancy word for it, but uh, collaborative uh, workforce sort of stuff, uh, projects and things like that. But we find it works really, really nice as far as a whiteboard goes. But what I'm about to tell you here is also equally applicable to um, all the major VTTs. So Roll20, Foundry, Albert, um, Fantasy Grounds, any of this sort of stuff, anywhere that basically would um, serves as a image holder that you can then interact with, right? You can lay tokens on, draw lines, all that sort of stuff. What you need to do um, in order to get yourself a, a grid map is um, actually create an image file that is a grid. Now, on a lot of the, like the more advanced VTTs, they have grid functionality to begin with, and so you can just kind of skip this test, uh, this part. But if you need to actually just come up with like a decent-looking white background with some grid lines on it, it's actually very, very simple, provided you have access to some sort of photo editing software. Um, uh, I won't give Adobe a dime, <laughs> but if you've got Adobe, feel free. Um, Adobe Photoshop would work, of course. Um, I use GIMP, which is the open-source uh, clone of Photoshop, and I love it. Um, but the basic steps are very, very um, easy. You're just basically going to go, going to go in. You're going to open up a square image is what you want to do, a blank image, and fill it with whatever color you want. White is what we use, obviously. Um, and then your program of choice should have an ability to actually overlay a pattern, a grid pattern over top. In GIMP, it's under filters. Um, you can add a grid. And then in order to size it correctly, you just need to divide the number of image pixels that the entire image is by the number of squares. And that'll give you the width and height and pixels of each square. Um, so what I did for Arden Vool because the maps are varying in scale and size, even though most of them are 10 foot squares, they vary, the levels vary in, widely in scale. So I created a number of blank grid images. One was 50 by 50 squares, one is 100 by 100, one's 150 by 150, and one is 200 by 200 for the very largest levels. And then all of those are on square uh, image files. And then I uploaded those to my VTT of choice. At one time it was Albert Rodeo, now it's Miro. Are you going to say something, Ted? Well, to that point, um, which it's not a huge issue, but I thought it was something interesting to flag for viewers who might be just sort of copying this wholesale. So um, I don't know if the viewers have been able to see at some point yet our full whiteboard with all the maps on it, but all of the grids are the exact same size physically on the screen. Yeah, let me show that while you're talking about it. Right. So which, as you said, means that the scale of each of those squares is slightly different, which is fine on each individual map. Right. It did present with uh, for me a slight problem when I wanted to start overlaying my maps to see where my intersection points were. I had to change the scale. Right. So if you want to save your players a little headache, you wouldn't do it that way. You <laughs> thought of me first, John. <laughs> and no. how would you have gotten around that issue? Well, I mean, you would you would say um, make a bigger square and you wouldn't have all these squares on the map be the identical size. Uh, I'm, not, I'm saying that wrong. You wouldn't have all these individual white maps on our whiteboard be the exact same size. They would be different sizes because but they would all have the same exact size little square, tiny square. Each square would be the exact same size. Right. right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, so that's not how because you can. I, right. Which I discovered. <laughs> and then all I had to do is just change the scale of the map that I wanted to overlay uh, until a known reference point was the same size as another known reference point. Right. And a good example of that, 
is Ted did this with the Druid's Retreat level, which is up here in the upper right. And let's zoom in on that. So this level, um, for those who have been fans, you may have remembered, um, was a very odd map because the map was 50 foot squares. Right. So huge. Yeah. A huge amount of distance being covered here in these tunnels. Right. And then, as you may remember out there, um, they actually drew the conclusion, thanks to the maps that they drew. They drew the conclusion that, oh, my God, I think I know where we are um, in relation to everything else. And so Ted took the the um, Howling Caves, what we call Plunger Town map, and then <laughs> and then rescaled it, as he just described. And he yeah. dragged the entire thing, selected all of it and dragged it over to the Druid's Retreat map and attempted to do his level best to have it line up. Right. So I'm not the, certain it's perfect, but it's good enough. Yeah. Yep. And that's all you really need. Good enough. Right. Yeah. Be- what is it? Better is the uh, better the, is the enemy of good. Yeah. Better is the enemy of good enough. Yeah. Um, so uh, that can all be done um, on any VTT. This, this is not something that only Miro can do. Yeah. Right. Now, what yeah. we like Miro for is the fact that we can I can have all of these maps, these highly detailed maps, and we suffer no lag whatsoever. That's the big <laughs> that's a big plus for Miro. Um, it's astonishing how how smooth it's working. Yeah. And because I'm still using Owlbear in my other game and it's it's starting to hit a bit of a slog on that map. So, yeah. And, and, and to be fair to the VTTs out there, like we said, this is sort of a lost art. So yes, you can do it. The capability is there. They have those drawing functions and you can just draw anything you want on a blank sheet of paper, um, digital paper, but it it's, that is not their primary intent of design. Their primary intent is to host battle maps, right? Like five E and Pathfinder two E battle maps, you know, five foot square battle maps where you're moving tokens around and all that sort of stuff. Right. That is not what we're doing here. We're doing macro dungeon level sort of drawing as we go. And, um, uh, what, I mean, I would back a Kickstarter in a hot second for any VTT that was actually tailored around true old school play that included player mapping. No one's done that. So if uh, if you've got programming knowledge out there, do it because I will help. <laughs> I will help fund that. That would be amazing. Um, but Miro's Miro's been doing the trick for us. Um, but any yeah. th- these lessons that we're gonna or these kind of tips and techniques that we're gonna share with you are, can be applied anywhere. Um, so what we thought we would do is talk about the tips and techniques that Ted and I use to communicate this stuff. Um, what yeah. Ted, how Ted uses the Miro tools, which are very similar to any other drawing tools in any other VTT um, to, uh, you know, quickly and accurately, quickly, right. Quickly and accurately um, <laughs> map, map, what he's, map what he's laying down and how I convey information in sort of like the tiered order in which I give information um, and, uh, and how yeah. we do it online. And like we said, we are not masters of this. We just feel that we're one of the very few places on YouTube that actually does show some iteration of this. So it's not like we're saying our way or the highway, like this is the only way to do it, but this is what we do. Um, and you, it can certainly be done better. Um, and if you guys have your own tips and techniques, please share them in the comments below. So what we thought we'd yeah. do is go over that. And what I would do is I have my own published, uh, I didn't write it, but I, I have a map that Ted has not seen from a different module, an OSC module. Um, Ted has not seen it. And I thought that we would just kind of, I would deliver the information and have Ted map it. And we'll talk through like what we're doing as Ted actually genuinely tries to map what I'm, what I'm laying down here. Um, sound like plan. It does. Um, I wanted to just point out one thing, which is when we, you know, sort of switched to, um, Miro, I spent 
probably four hours down in the basement on my computer, learning the tools, learning how to use it. And like, I mean, you pick up the tool quickly, right? Mm -hmm. Like, oh, there's the pen. Hey, I can change the color of the pen, yada, yada. It takes time to make it move swiftly so that I can map fast enough to not cause everyone to fall asleep watching the video. Yeah. Um, So that took some practice and hopefully it's moving at a good pace for, for viewers. Um, I think it's working fine. Uh, And I'm sure that would be true of any interface you're using. You would need to have some time practicing what you're doing. Yeah. Um, You gotta, you gotta learn. It's, it's, it's like any piece of software. You gotta learn it. Um, You don't have to be like, there's a ton of functionality of Miro that we haven't even delved into because it's not meant for role-playing games. Um, right. but Ted has done, Ted knows way more than I do about, um, the functionality of this now. Um, even though I'm the one that introduced it to the group. Um, but, uh, it's a, it's a good point. Like you've got to have the player buy in the players have to be willing to kind of jump in and do it. There's nothing easier than actually just doing a hand drawn on graph paper. That just takes no skill. You just, yep. just pick it up and yep. start to do it. But yes, there are some rudimentary, um, uh, tools that you've got to learn how to use here in Miro in order to get it done. Yeah. Um, so you can see here that I have expanded the normal view of Miro. I usually don't share all of the controls um, on either side, the toolbars and everything on our normal stream, but I do here so that you can see what Ted is doing. Um, Ted, uh, wave your cursor at the folks at home there so they know what to look for there. Yeah, so that's Ted. So wherever Ted is going, um, that's what you want to kind of follow what Ted is doing. Um, that's so, just a rule for life, really. Yeah, really. So I'm going <laughs> to... So Ted, just so you know, I'm going to zoom in for the yeah. audience so that they can see the actual square lines. I'm, I'm always going to keep the legend in frame. So you're probably going to want to start mapping like so kind of towards the right of the legend. Okay. Right. Okay. So um, about in here, would that be good, John? Yeah, that's, that's perfect. Yeah, that's great. Okay, um, great. And what scale are we using today, John? Well, we're going to do five foot squares for this one, which is different Ooh. than what you may have, you're used to in Arden Bull, which is 10 foot. And for you modern role players out there, you're probably quite comfortable with five foot squares. Um, so first thing, Ted, why don't you talk a little bit about your creation of the legend there and what it took to kind of do that, put that together. Yeah, so that happened during my practice phase when, so what I did to practice was I decided to just create a dungeon. I figured there's no better way to, like I could scribble lines and draw shapes and you know I could draw you know a, an amusing wizard and, uh, do something embarrassing to him. And I'd learn how to use my mouse and the pen, but in order to learn how to map a dungeon, I needed to make a dungeon. And I wanted to make it complicated with lots of features. It needed to have statues and traps and secret doors and doors and various things like that. So after the first few doors, I drew it. Then I realized, well, this is, you know, why am I drawing it every time? Right. And um, so I started you know, you can select the door and copy it and paste it and drag it around and so on. And so then I just said, oh, this is, let's just have a key so that when Matt is mapping, he's using the same symbols and methodology as I am. Mm -hmm. And that was a big, uh, big deal actually, because, um, you know, uh, I think if two people draw the same dungeon separately, they're not communicating, you would find two very different maps. Absolutely. And in order in order to maintain some degree of uh, continuity, Matt and I using the same language uh, was key. So the key haha, it right now is um, probably not everything that you might want on a key. Um, no, but you'll but add to it. Yeah. 
it, I've added a couple of things too. We added stairs to it. We added teleportation circles to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we added found corpse to it. That was Matt's idea. That was a really good one, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> sadly enough, a lot sadly, of those, <laughs> a lot of them. <laughs> uh, I, I suppose that I could color code them for you know definitely dead and possibly going to reanimate later. <laughs> right. I don't know. You got Covered a lot of options. Here. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, but statue and secret door and door. Uh, have been the three that I use a lot. Mm-hmm. And then I have enjoyed using these arrows, uh, you know, for m- making sure that I indicate which direction a set of stairs goes or like um, uh, a good example uh, would be uh, actually, John, if you s- zoom into AV club secret entrance at the bottom, there is the dungeon I made up. If you want to highlight on that. Sure. Uh, and you can see, uh, I used arrows to direct the traffic flow mm. and which way the stairs went. And I added these little, you know, clouds and uh, text fields and things like that. This is a good um, example. If I can just interrupt real quick, like you can see that Ted here has copy and pasted that exact same legend on the left-hand side there. Yeah. Um, and then what's really useful about having a key like this is unlike a physical key, you can actually highlight any of these symbols that he's made and just duplicate them straight from the key and just Actually, write, or maybe not. <laughs> I can't right now because we flattened this thing somehow and I'm not oh, sure how flattened. that happened. Okay. But normally, yeah. but normally, yes, let's go back to you the, uh, somewhere else I could do it. Well, let's go, let's, go down to, let's go to the, uh, to the original one here, the, the mapping tutorial. Um, oh yeah. Okay. So, yeah. so basically uh, I can select it like that. You can see that. And then you don't copy it. You duplicate it. Command D on a Mac. And then you just drag it over. But because we're using um, a five foot square scale, I might want to make that a little, a little bigger. And some just for anyone who's using Miro, I will point out that your control over the refinement of a size depends a lot on how zoomed in you are. So if you zoom way in on your uh, on your detail, you have a lot more control over the size. I, it's probably got something to do with just how it interprets pixels on your screen. If you're right. zoomed way out away from the map, you don't have much fine control. You zoom way in, you have a lot of fine control. That makes sense. Yeah. And I now see zooming in, that's a really crappy looking trap door. <laughs> but that's all right. <laughs> that's it all does you the need. job. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and this is a good point too. Um, in Miro, the grid lines that you're seeing here are is just an image file. So there's no snapping to these particular grid lines. Yes. Um, Miro itself, the overall board, I'm going to zoom all the way out here. Okay. Give you guys a, this is a macro view of everything that my players can see. Like the, basically the home of the Halls of Ardenville campaign. Um, yeah. Uh, and it's, I mean, I'm, I'm using barely anything. I'm going to zoom way out. So this is the entire board. It's massive. And this has a point grid set on it. I don't know if you can see that. Hopefully with this 4K recording, you can. But um, uh, those points you can snap to on Miro. But within a a given image file that I've created here, which is just a a grid image, um, you cannot snap to these actual grids. So just be aware of that. Um, But we we actually find that um, a little bit better because there's there's so many anomalous sort of um, corridors and things like that. Like not everything is like Archontean stonework that has right angles, right? There's a lot of weird caverns and things like that. So snapping is of minimal value in a lot of situations for dungeon mapping. So don't sweat it. Yeah, it was nice in Owlbear 
worked great. Yeah. Um, in this, what we use is something, if you're looking at, I think your viewers should be seeing the toolbar on the left there. Yep, indeed. The pen tool has a few options. You've got a, a pen, a highlighter, and then smart drawing. And smart drawing is what I've been using uh, for all the mapping because I discovered that it can do some cool stuff. So first of all, because it's not snapping to, uh, what I'll do is if I'm drawing a corridor, John says, okay, it's 10 feet wide. I'll draw a line. Are you seeing that, John? I am. Yep. And I'll draw another line and I've drawn them on that gray grid, but it's, of course, it's not really there. Now what I can do is I go to my uh, select tool and I can select that line because it's smart. It's got anchor points and it does that sometimes. And I don't know why. And I can stretch it out. And then John says, oh, but actually that room is a weird diamond shape. And I say, hey, that's no problem. Mm -hmm. What is it doing and why is it doing that? I don't know. And then boom, I've made a room that's a weird diamond shape. Yep, and then see. John says, well, that's not the diamond shape I meant. And then I can adjust it, you know, until it's what he meant. Yeah, so you can, you can basically on any given line that you draw, you can add points. And you can, yeah. they're basically like nodes, and then you can basically pull and stretch those however you want. And of course, if, if things are just too unwieldy, you can just erase everything and start over again. Um, and this happens quite frequently because. <laughs> yeah, it happens a lot. It, it does. It happens a lot. It, it is what it is. Oftentimes, I'll make a mistake, or Ted will make it like if I'll say like it's a 20 by 40 room, Ted will just uh, quickly mark that in. And then suddenly I'll be like, and there's an exit on the West side and there's a quarter that goes around to the East side. And so he's got to open up all these different egresses yeah. out of there and it takes a lot of work. Um, so it's not so bad with doors because you can tell the door to be forward and it'll just hide the line right. uh, that you've, you've uh, inadvertently put there. And I've done a few um, uh, little items on the maps here and there where I was creatively playing with drawing some lines and then making parts of them opaque and parts transparent to simulate uh, having a some particular shape. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it hides lines. It also hides the grid line that you're over, unfortunately, but it's not the end of the world. Yeah. That's a key, so. a key thing, though, is that it, you can layer objects as well. So you can you can push things yeah. to the back or, put, or bring them to the front, just like you do in photo editing software. Um, which can yeah. be really helpful as well. All right, so yeah, let's like um, let's, let's get into this. some of these tips and techniques with this uh, with this map, huh? All right. Okay. So, audience out there, there you can see the map. This is from the upcoming um, Old School Essentials Adventure Anthology Volume Two. Um, I'm hoping Ted is not familiar with this because I know Ted was a Kickstarter backer. I've backed it. I have it. I have not opened it. Okay. Because I have a lot of things All in right. my life. And... <laughs> There you exactly. go. <laughs> I figured that not a lot of people have seen this map. Um, if you uh, are at all sensitive to spoilers, be aware that this uh, this is contains spoilers for the adventure called um, the uh, what's it called Barrow of the Bone Blackguards, which is by Chance Dudenack, and it's one of the small adventures in the adventure anthologies, which is oh. coming out soon. Um, and it has a uh, all the maps are fantastic in these anthologies, and they're all relatively small. So uh, we're not going to map this entire thing, of course, but we just thought it would be a good example because you can see the map pretty evident and um, it shouldn't be. And okay. it's also very sort of geometric, so it won't be too much of a pain in the ass for Ted. Um, okay, so I'm ready, sir. Let's do it. So uh, just a real quick framing thing. This is a 
a barrow in the woods, similar to the Winter's Daughter one, um, but quite larger. Um, and it was rumored that it was a large tomb for um, fallen soldiers in a battle way back in the day. And adventurers have heard rumors that there is singing and converting being heard from within the barrel, within the tomb. So adventurers have been called in to go check it out and stop that from happening. Um, so there <laughs> I can see is the locals. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so uh, the adventurers arrive, and there is a, a there is a ten foot wide opening into the barrow mound. You're coming in from the south, and a rock that used to cover the barrow to keep it, uh, to keep it, uh, you know, closed away has been rolled to the side, exposing a 10 foot wide opening into a chamber beyond. So this must be a fairly large rock. All right. Something like that. That's about right. Perhaps. Yeah. It's about a 10 foot, about a 10 foot wide rock covering a 10 foot wide opening. Although that rock has been shunted to the West. Okay. Which means that I need to, put my opening you said a 10 foot wide opening 10 foot wide opening yeah and it goes directly it and it goes in and heads to the north into darkness okay okay all right so uh yeah so you can see that's that's just the basics right there is i kind of set it up um I, one keith i'm probably going to realize techniques as we kind of uh just talk to each other but one thing that i always try to do is speak in directions i don't speak in left and right and up and down, because that can quickly get confusing, depending on the perspective of what you're talking about, whether or not you're talking about the perspective of the map or the perspective of where the characters are, things like that. If I say that, for instance, Mort sees something to his left, it all depends on which direction Mort is facing, right? So it's much better and more yeah. clear for the mapper to actually, as the referee, tell the mapper um, directions using cardinal directions when at, uh, all, at all possible. So... That's why I say they are entering from the south. The entrance goes uh, into darkness, going to the north. Okay. All right. So let's take a look here. Um, there are streams of mist that are slithering out, um, and the whole place stinks of decay. And you can hear the distant echoes of, of song uh, coming from inside as well. Um, I'm going to get too into this module. We're actually going to start playing it. Don't want to do that. It has nothing to do with mapping. <laughs> Okay. I'm I'm ready. I have more here. Um you go. Yeah. So pretend like I'm giving all the rest of the really cool narrative description, but we're gonna focus on here is just the mapping. All right. Okay. So Ted arrives at the entrance and starts pulls pulls out his uh his uh, scroll case and whips out his plume and starts to map. Okay. Uh you can see going forward, you light your lantern um in order to illuminate what you can. This is another key thing is you never want to give more description than what their light sources can give. Um if you if you I'm going to be stopping all the time now that I think about all these cool things, but um, it's an essential thing that you, uh, if, if you forego the, the character's use of light, then you're basically saying that that does not matter in the campaign, or you're going to get called out by the players when you make it matter. And they're going to be able to say, well, you didn't, it didn't matter back in the, back when we were mapping. Right. So try to keep um, in mind what the light source is, who is holding it and how far it goes at all times. It's a key part of resource management in old school play. And it's definitely a key thing that the referee has to keep in his mind at all times. Um, so with uh, an old school in old school essentials, um, torches and lanterns have a 30 foot radius. So I would only describe what they can see in 30 feet from where they are. Yeah, Ted. Well, I would I would say, yeah. I think that's absolutely right. And I'm glad you do it that way. I, I have 
on occasion in a 40 foot room, you've just given us the dimensions, I think, because it's just madness to, <laughs> okay, I creep forward 10 feet to discover the other side of the wall. It's a lot simpler for everyone sometimes to fudge it a little bit. Definitely. You, know, you can probably see the wall. It's not like that's a total line of invisibility at 30 feet, yeah. but I know in big caverns and stuff, you've been, you've said you have not given the dimensions till we've circled the room and uh, right. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. It also, um, it, it, it gives, I think it also provides a sense of what else is there. Um, and it kind of pushes players to want to explore more or to step into the room where normally they would be extra super cautious, right? Like if they, if they can't get the full dimensions, you know, that that's an automatic like desire to step in so they can at least get what, you know, um, and then they step into the trap and it's all good. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, keep that in mind. Oh, Always Lord. keep 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 um light radiuses in mind. Don't be yeah. afraid to fudge it when necessary if it's really close. Um, but in large chambers, don't give them everything. Make them step in. Um, yeah. In this case, this is the case. So what I would tell Ted is is that um, there is a ten foot wide corridor that goes directly north to thirty feet to the limits of your of your lantern light, and there does not seem to be a wall at the end of that. So it continues on into darkness past thirty feet. So Ted's going to draw. 30 feet and leave it open-ended um now ted's already already jumped the gun though because i haven't uh i haven't fully explained that there are classic. yeah cl classic 3d6 <laughs> down the line uh, <laughs> all right what did i miss john tell me <laughs> give me a second and i'll, I'll check also I, I don't know are you seeing this weird line thing that i get where it jumps off uh no. you're not seeing that okay i'm getting this weird artifact where the line is trying to connect to something six miles away and just shoots off. And if I just wait a second, it corrects itself, but I am not sure what you're seeing, but if you do see that, no, nope. pay no mind. Yeah. It seems to be, it seems to be fine. Okay. So okay. lining the Eastern and Western parts of this corridor are burial alcoves at regular intervals. Um, so, uh, oh. every, yes. So after five feet, there are, um, five foot square burial alcoves to the East and West, basically facing each other. Mm -hmm. and then it skips five feet and then there's another set and it skips five feet okay. and there's another set now here is a great see is it doing it do you see it no did you see that no no okay good it's just on my screen then so here's a great example of where i am not going to get fussy about drawing five foot alcoves with that snap line i'm just going to go and i might change color to make it uh indicate that it's a niche rather than like a you know because i'm assuming at the floor level, the wall is continuous, that these niches are like a few feet above the floor. They're actually a little niche, right? They're actually niches, Not, so you could walk right into them. Yeah, so I draw them in green, something like that. And they don't need to be pretty, they just need to tell me that there's a niche there. And is this uh, an accurate portrayal of nichery? Uh, so there, it's actually, no, it's actually not. So it's actually, um, after five feet okay. is the first set. And yeah. they are and they are five foot square niches. Don't forget these. these oh, I'm on a five niches. foot square map, not a ten foot square map. Yep, you had a feeling that's what you were sort of thinking. Uh huh. And I also only drew a fifteen foot corridor instead of a thirty foot corridor because I forgot we're on a five foot scale already. Mm -hmm. And the niches themselves are actually five feet, so they're actually whole squares. Oh, okay, right. fine. That is also easily fixed. Just delete that. Go back to my pen. So like that? Yep, exactly. 
and then it skips five feet, and then there's another set. All right, and then I could just duplicate this and just drag that up there and drag that up there, and I could duplicate it. Jeez. Oh, um, price more, and in Miro, I have a lovely little rotate feature, and I'll just turn them around. Slip them into place. And you can do that in any VTT to any object that you have that usually has handles that you can just simply rotate. Um, yeah. So uh, copying and pasting, duplicating, um, transforming, using basic transform tools are your best friend instead of having to draw everything single-handedly. Draw one thing and then duplicate it across um, every time, uh, every every many times you need it on the map. Yeah, did. Now this this brings up something I think interesting, which is at, at uh, in our comment sections on YouTube, we've had a lot of people asking, uh, "What is Ted using to draw?" And for a while, I was using um, a Wacom tablet, mm. and um, I I, part, I I abandoned it for two reasons. One was real estate on my desk; I just didn't have anywhere to put it. I've got a keyboard and microphone and a glass of scotch and all my notes, and you know. Uh, my lamp and my monitor. There's no room. Right. The other was that I had a. I bought the the cheapest one possible to see if I liked using it, and I do. Uh, I'm not here to endorse or disparage Wacom, um, but it's not the kind where I'm drawing on the screen. It's just a blank piece of plastic, and the disconnect between trying to draw, you know, here while I'm looking here was a huge distraction. If you've got one of those really nice, you know. Uh, Wacom's or I forgot the other one, Cintiq, one of those where you're drawing right on the screen, you may find drawing yeah. is the way to go instead of trying to use all these little tips and tricks I'm giving you. This is all mouse-based stuff right. that I'm talking about at this point because I'm not using that Wacom anymore. I'm doing it all with the mouse and uh, it's just a lot easier for me and I had to have the mouse on the on the desk anyway, and yada, yada, yeah. yada. But if I had a Cintiq, man, I would be drawing this stuff. And yeah, and this and, and it's you don't need anything more than a mouse. Like that's really no, all you need. Like absolutely. we said, like you you do not need to be a professional artist to be able to do this sort of stuff. The tools are built and made so that anyone can pick them up. You just need a little bit of practice, just getting used to the user interface, and you're set. You're good to go. Um, but yeah, Ted's mm -hmm. right. Um, if if you do, uh, if if you've got the money and the desk space, go for one of those fancy Cintiqs because those things are pretty sweet, and um, the the experience will be pretty seamless. Um, compared to actually drawing on real graph paper. So, yeah. uh, but that's for, that's, that's luxury level. So don't, don't feel pressured to ever need that. A mouse yeah, is yeah, going to yeah. serve you just fine. Yeah. Do okay. So works there, uh, there are um, a number of interesting things in the niches. Nothing's going to attack you though, but um, just so you can see what Ted has done here is that every VTT and Miro itself has a text tool as well. So if there is something interesting to note in the niches or anything on the dungeon, you can simply quickly, write a note um, directly on to the um, map itself. Miro is nice because you can make sticky notes as well to, to actually draw the attention to it. There's Ted's actually made one right there. And you can resize it and connect it to other sticky notes and all this sort of cool mind mapping sort of stuff that we haven't really delved into. But um, for any VTT, you can just use the text tool. Um, we used it in Albert a lot as well and, um, draw and uh, make notes to your heart's content. So nothing happens here. Um, uh, Ted's character moves uh, with his lantern northwards to, so that he can scope out the rest of it. And he can see that um, after the last set of niches, it goes on for another five feet. 
before it actually uh, terminates in a set of double doors that straddles the entire width of the corridor. Okay. Um, it's not going to stop Ted's character, so but there I'm is it. What I'm going to do is I'm going to use that little anchor feature. I've got my corridor. Now I'm going to go over and I'm going to grab a double. Do you said a double door? Double door, yep. Boop. So, I'm so going to grab. Ted already had door. that set up in his um, in his legend. So any sort of symbol that you haven't made yet, you can simply draw it out real quick, add it to your legend, and then you can just duplicate it from that point forward. You only ever have to draw these things one time. And then he can transform that to um, there. So you can see there that he actually put it onto a higher layer than the actual drawing of the corridor itself. So it lays on top of the end of that corridor. Um, and if he wanted to, he could actually stretch out those double doors to span the entire width of the corridor. I can, yeah. Well, I think, I, yeah. I also actually had to make it opaque. Um, I was able to. Um, oh, that's what you did. Okay. Yeah, I brought it forward and realized that the key is not actually uh, opaque. Gotcha. Yeah. And then I'm just gonna close this little gappy there because we don't want any viewers thinking I'm not meticulous with attention to detail yeah. look at that okay yeah now ted once again is being as you said meticulous you do not have to be <laughs> this per perfect no no, no. Uh, um, i wore a tie for this you see so <laughs> yes. i have a certain image to uphold here oh, mm, yeah i am i am thing. blessed as a referee to have very diligent and skilled players in all of uh, all arenas and uh, ted uh, spoils us by creating excellent maps um do not expect your players to be able to to do as good of a job as Ted has done out of the gate. Like I said, it takes practice and you do not need this level of sophistication. Um, I mean, do we really call this? I mean, I'm, I'm tuning to Ted's voice. It's totally sophisticated. Look, yeah, it does. Even, it takes skill better than I'll, I could do. I'll even, I'll even do this. Is this sophisticated enough for you, John? Yeah. He's got the pinky out. Look out. So the, <laughs> I think the key lesson, what I'm trying to say here is you want to, uh, you want to map, as accurately as you can, that still allows you to keep pace with what else is going on in the group. If yeah. you find yourself becoming a wallflower because you're spending too much time mapping and like your character never says anything or never does anything because you're just, yeah. you're fine tuning every little detail, you're going to miss out on things that are going on in the group for one thing. Um, and, yeah. uh, and you're not engaged in a positive manner. You're only engaged in one aspect of play, which is map making. So yeah. only do enough mapping that's just, you know, allows you to sort of keep pace with everybody else. Um, and yeah. uh, ev everyone else is still going to appreciate your efforts and you're going to be very proud of what you did in the end anyway. So, uh, yeah. I do find on complicated rooms, like the room we did, um, let's see, it would have been session 45, I think with the room that had like 20 statues in it. Mm-hmm. I did get into the weeds on trying to get that room laid out and get it in the right position and stuff. And I, there was things happening that I was only half aware of. Yeah. So it, it's an easy trap to fall into. Uh, generally, I do try to like get the room roughly laid out as I'm listening to John. And then when, if I'm being honest, then when David is doing something crazy, then I can go back in. <laughs> and take the time. Put a few refinements on the room because I, I, there's no stopping him. So I'll just let him do his thing and I'm going to go in and tweak some things. But sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, and you should, as Ed, Ted does this with me and you should also do it with your own referees. Um, if you're, uh, if you're overwhelmed, if, if the referee gives too much information uh, too quickly 
or is confusing in any sort of manner, just stop him, yeah. stop yeah. them and, and um, ask them to, to clarify and to take the time. And oftentimes if you have really cool players, they're going to jump in and try to help you iron out the details as well. Um, so yeah. uh, take the time. Everyone's going to be willing to, to stop for a moment. So you get it right. And, um, and don't be afraid just to, to make sure that you're understanding things clearly. Um, okay. So John, are there corpses in the niches? Uh, there are no corpses in the niches. They're just scraps Ooh. of linen and stuff like that, but they're defaced reliefs of warriors fighting and they're scribbled over with profanity. Mm -hmm. However, on the um, northern door, though, there is a big warning that says, all who enter will be cursed. That's not going to stop Tent okay. Adventure, though. Um, all... So this, this is the kind of thing I do like to record. All who enter will be cursed. Yep. And I, I find that um, when there's inscriptions on the walls... It's nice to write them down right on the map, partly because it reminds us that it was there, what it said word for word. Sometimes that's really important. Mm -hmm. And it helps you uh, differentiate one room from another. You know, you can say, oh, you know, the cursed room, the it's right over the door. Oh, yeah, yep. yeah, yeah, I remember. You know, so 100%. Uh, it's almost yeah, more effective nice than having that down. same note written down in a note document because you it, because you're associating the note with an actual space rather than in just a list of, of, of notes that you've been taking yeah. for the session. So it's like, where was it where we found, we saw that one inscription and you just look at the map and you're like, Oh yeah, there it is. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't do it all the time. Some of the inscriptions are so long. They, <laughs> they yeah. it's especially impossible to transcribe them. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. So, uh, all right, so I'm going to open the door, John, the double doors presents no obstacles and you open it up. It opens Sweet. up into an East, uh, a large Eastern Western corridor, East to West corridor, also 10 feet wide that okay. heads out uh, 30 feet in either direction. So you um, can east west corridor, 10 feet wide goes in either direction for 30. Don't forget. You only drew 15 feet there. Yeah, I know it. I know it. Uh, I'm just getting it uh, sort of laid out so that then I can go back in with my little magic. Uh, let's see if I can grab it. Jeez. I really don't know what is going on with my computer. And I'm glad you're not seeing what my line does because it's super annoying. I did add a, add a layer of transparency over the grid map, Ted. Um, I don't know if that's causing things to... It, it might be. It, it's it's keying off of something somewhere. It's like, oh, he definitely wants to connect to that. Oh, And I don't know what it is. It's that's a mirror. That's a mirror specific thing, though, folks. So don't don't. Yeah, sweat. It's, um, it's trying to create connections between, uh, you know, different things and, that are on the screen. And it's doing that too, partially because Ted is using the um, the uh, what's it called the uh, smart drawing tool. Smart tool. Uh, yeah, you can just use like a regular pen and just draw freehand. Um, but this yeah, allows Ted. Yeah, this this allows Ted to draw very straight lines. Um, but you don't have to draw straight lines, right? You just draw freehand, go for it. Uh, so what you can see what I did there is I didn't tell Ted in reference where he was appearing in reference to the rest of the corridor. I just said he opens up the doors and there's an east-west corridor and it goes off for 30 feet in the direction. He has no sense of, is he in the middle of the corridor, right? He doesn't, no, doesn't know, right? Um, so I just did it. First of all, I gave it by the cardinal directions, and then I uh, described how much he could see based upon his torchlight radius, assuming that he swings the torch or the lantern left and right. right. Um, uh, I always make those base assumptions that 
you're doing basic exploratory stuff without me having to ask. That's just going to bog things down. I just assume that anyone with light is going to be shining that light in yeah. every possible direction to see what's going on, right? Um, unless they tell me otherwise, basically. I so, think that's a fair assumption when you're in the exploration mode. I yeah. can see where there's times where you might not do it that way, but we're in exploration mode. Of course, we're looking around. Yeah, you're looking around. And that's Why a, that's a good tip too for OSR play as well is that um, the movement rates in the turn sequence uh, is set up that way because there's a default assumption that the adventurers are being adventurers. They're being careful and they're trying not to make noise. They're moving very slowly. They're mapping as they go. Um, and they're, uh, unless they tell the referee differently, you can just assume that this is happening. So there's no need for stealth checks and perception checks and all that sort of stuff. It's just, there's a default assumption that these are capable adventurers, even at level one, and that they know what they're doing. They're trying their best to be careful and you should give appropriate descriptions for dungeon rooms based upon that assumption. Um, when you're giving them, uh, what their five senses can, um, can, uh, uh, pick up. I would just like to say that the the lie in that statement will be clearly evident in episode 46. <laughs> possibly, possibly. Where somebody, I name no names, was not careful at all. <laughs> it happens to the best of us. This is how lessons are learned, as I always say. So, okay, um, what do we got here? So there's a cobweb-festooned hall. There are pottery fragments on the ground. Um, okay. doesn't really matter though. So let's just, let's just continue mapping. We're not, we're not actually playing okay. this module. So would you I'm like to go, go west or east? East. I'm going to go east because if I go west, I'm going to run into my key. So I'm going to go east. <laughs> Good plan. Okay. So, uh, the quarter oh. goes east. Let's see. Yeah. Um, what I'm going to do as a referee is I'm going to give him the entire length of the corridor from the point of the double doors, even though he's mapped already part of it. Um, five, 10, 15, right. 20, 25, 30, 35. So the quarter goes on for another 35 feet. Okay, now it's, the first question I would have is, is that from, if you can see my cursor, is that from this point? Yes. Okay. And so I, anyone who's been listening to us for a while has found that this is probably the number one problem John and I have is, is like he says quarter goes 30 feet and then there's a turn. And I think... You know, okay, one, two, three squares, and then in the fourth square, there's a turn. And what he means is the turn is in the third square. So I, yeah. it, I have to, I have to make sure I understand where he's starting from, and what he's counting. Yeah, we still haven't figured out like a good way to actually convey that. We should probably just actually think about that and come up with a decision. Um, but we yeah. struggle through as we do. But it can be tough. Um, uh, yeah. So Ted is going. Well, I add five 15, feet 20, to that. Thirty-five. So you're good. Yeah. So that's thirty-five okay. feet. At what which point, at which point, okay, the, um, the, the quarter doesn't end, but to the south, it actually turns a corner, uh, into a five foot wide passageway, which about like two feet into that passageway is completely choked with a cave in. Like there was some sort of a passageway there, but it's no longer there. Okay. So here's a good one for the regular pen and I'll just draw some rubble and then a quick note that says cave in and if we decide to excavate that then maybe i'll erase that and whatever move it around something like that but right now it's totally choking the corridor yep completely choking the corridor yeah so and I'll then the corridor 
basically goes on for another five feet before it actually hits a wall. And there. nothing to the north of that corridor. There, there is something to the north, actually. So, there uh, there. yeah, there is a, so the corridor narrows, uh, to half its width. So it's only a five foot wide corridor that goes directly north from that point. All right. Okay. Wait, hold on. Okay. So here's another great example of what John has described makes sense to him because he has a map in front of him. It made zero sense to me. <laughs> so the question, my first question is, was there something on the north opposite the cave-in? And you said no. yes. No. What I, what I meant was at the point where the wall uh, is on the eastern side, at the eastern end of the corridor, it goes uh -huh. north It goes north from that point, and it's only five feet wide. So do I get something like... Yes. The, oh, oh, see? Now, do you see that line? I see that line, yeah. <laughs> I let go of it. It's trying to... Oh, I see what it's trying to do. It's trying to grab the edge of the map. I oh, don't know why. Weird. I don't know why it's doing that. Okay, so this is doing this. Is that right? Yes, correct. Yeah. Okay. So, so it's going north. However, um, uh, so it, it, it shoots north for um, five foot wide quarter going as far as you can possibly see for 30 feet. However, there are... Um, there is a passageway heading east at the at right at the point where it turns north. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. So what I need to do is draw it like uh, something like this. Yes, that's correct. And then, okay. Yep. Like so. You got it. Exactly. Okay. Uh, All right. So, yeah, you can see like where we have to kind of stop each other and kind of figure things out yep. a little bit. But I'm always consistently using the cardinal directions. Um, yeah. uh, I give it to him. Usually if I can, I give it to him in feet. I think that just adds to the realism rather than giving it to um, Ted in squares. I think it just helps to kind of orient people with yeah. distances as far as. Um, the characters in the actual space itself is better to give it in feet rather than squares. Um, Shouldn't we be using our Kantian feet, though, I think? Like, or Stade or Ulna's or something like <laughs> this that? This is I true, mean, yeah, but my job's hard okay. enough already. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, um, yeah, it continues off into darkness. Uh, so it looks like when, you, when you're when you at that eastern corridor and you shine your lantern into the eastern corridor, it looks like it only goes for that five feet before it opens up into a wider space. However, when you swing your lantern to the north, it continues to go off into darkness for as far as you can see. So it goes at least 30 feet. All right. So I'll, I don't need to draw that full distance because I'm okay. going to go east for now. So I'm going to go step okay. into that five foot square and observe the room okay. without entering it. So in the midst of that small corridor there, you can see that it opens up into a perfect square room. And that room is 15 feet by 15 feet. And you are entering in directly in the middle of the western wall as i surmised i might be okay doo, doo, doo. so this is a baseline description you've probably heard me say it a bunch of times for a very simple room this is our first room we sort of described here um it's uh you can see that i gave him the basic uh shape of the room first so, so ted has that in his mind i tell him it's square i don't tell him any dimensions i tell him it's square so he's got that in his mind and then I tell him what the um, actual dimensions are. So I say it's a square room 
it's 15 by 15. And then the only way that Ted can determine where he should lay down that 15 by 15 is to tell him where the characters are entering from in relation to that description, right? So you always have to tell them you're entering in this many squares or this many feet uh, north or south or east or west from a certain wall, right? So I say you're entering in directly in the middle of the western wall, and that uh, basically pinpoints it for Ted. Um, and uh, that's about as easy as it gets for dungeon rooms. Square room, middle of the wall, easy, right? Um, so this is a good point for me to sort of tell you the what I feel is like the best way to convey information to players um, as they enter new rooms, especially to the mapper, first of all, is to start with the overall room dimensions like I just did. Um, then you want to uh, end... What I, I actually recommended this to Ted in the last session is that for strange rooms that may have a lot of weird features or weird exits or shapes or something like that, it might also, um, I, I recommend actually jotting down the notes the ref gives you on a piece of paper first um, or, or maybe writing it in text on, on mirror or something like that and then actually finishing the drawing once the, once the ref has given all the entire description. If you're mapping simultaneously as the referee is giving the description, there's a chance that you may have to redo a lot of your work is, is the point that I'm trying to make here. Uh, this yeah, room is not I that. Don't mind doing. Yeah. It's not it, a big deal. It's all about your tolerance level, but if you don't want to fall behind, it might yeah. be a good idea just to like take notes. Um, yeah. Don't have to do it with a square room like this, but so first of all, what you want to do is given the overall room dimensions, then you want to add the dimension anomalies to, uh, that that may be occurring in those rooms. So if you get a room that perhaps that, like if this was a square room, but it actually had um, rounded corners, this would be the point where you tell them that it has rounded corners, right? So you would say it's a 15 by 15, 15 by 15 foot room. And then you would be like, wait a second, Ted, don't draw it yet. Just be aware that all of the corners actually have rounded corners and then they take a compensate for that. Then what you want to do is, is you continue to drill down into further and further detail. So then once Ted has mapped out the basic uh, dimensions of the room, he may be done. But depending on what he may want to add, this would be the point where you would talk about the room details. So the furniture, the dressing, the items in the room, the detritus in the room, where things are located, statues and pillars, inscriptions, all that sort of stuff, right? This is where the... As Ted just did, he can draw from your legend and start placing things down, right? Um, or if you've got an artistic bent and you actually want to draw the detritus or where a weapons rack is or where a, a shattered dresser is or something like that, you can certainly do that, right? Or you could just write a text note down or something like that. Um, but you want to leave that to the last point, And that is not something that you necessarily should be adding to a map. It's only if you feel it would be useful as a reference later on. Um, and then the very last thing that you, that you would want to convey to a mapper is inhabitants <laughs> who's in the room <laughs> right um you can make the case for that might be the very first thing you might want to convey yeah. <laughs> um and i often will like if it's something where the where the inhabitants are going to be hostile or it's a dilemma that the characters are gonna have to deal with immediately um where they cannot size up what the dimensions of the of the room are um i'll just skip right to the action right like you know yeah. you walk into a room and it's filled with bab with with baboons there's six of them. What do you do? You know, and then if they ask me questions about the dimension of the room, I'll give it to them, but I won't give them any details because they're in the middle of a scrum now, right? They they can't parse that kind of level of detail. Um, but all things being equal, and you're in a peaceful room that doesn't seem to have any sort of threat, that's the order I would do it. So start with room dimensions, dimension anomalies, the details of the room, and then the inhabitants. Um, right. Okay. So, so if we're just uh, sticking with mapping. Yeah, and there's no features in this room that I would need to map. 
Mm -hmm. Should we just keep going north then? Yeah, you want to keep going north? Okay. Okay. So you go north. Um, uh, as you exit this room, you're going to go north for another 15 feet. And after that 15 feet, so at the 20 foot mark, there is another five foot wide passageway going east. So um, right here? Correct. Okay. And is it, uh, well, you said five foot passage going east. Mm -hmm. Five foot passage east, and it opens up into an exact duplicate of the southern room. Okay, so here's a cool thing that Miro can do, and probably others of this sort as well. You can lasso something and temporarily turn it into a thing that you can duplicate. And then I might need to actually fine tune it down a little bit. That's pretty good. That's pretty cool. And look, uh, oh, didn't quite work perfectly, but close enough. Save me a little time. Save some time. Yeah. So I know that you listeners out there and our viewers can actually see Ted actually doing the actual looping. Um, I can't see it either, but uh, just be aware that oh, each, yeah, each, that's a good point. each individual a line that, that Ted is drawing or each individual object, they're all um, separate little, uh, they're their own individual, not files, um, objects. They're their own objects. And they can all be individually or collectively grouped together or or selected by just kind of lassoing them around yeah. like Ted just did. So you could just select as many as you want um, and then just uh, do a control D to duplicate them and then move them around like Ted did. Yeah. yeah. So the lasso is pretty evident how it works if you've ever used, you know, any Photoshop or anything like that. Yeah. Same kind of deal. You just lasso it. And it takes everything inside that lasso and turns it into an object that you can duplicate. Yep. And much simpler than it, like Photoshop. So, yeah. And I, I'm curious, I just noticed something which I hadn't noticed before. When I duplicated it, the room that I had drawn was two separate smart lines and it duplicated that mm. exactly. It does oh, not create a new different thing. It really does duplicate what, what I selected. Oh, cool. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. So uh, I can still manipulate the two separate lines as separate lines. If, if this room, for example, had one little different feature, I, it's a little easier for me to add it in than having to like erase section of line or something like that. Gotcha. So, gotcha. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So All I've right. determined that there's a second room, second room and it's yep. pretty boring. So I'm going to go back out in the hallway, back out in the hallway. <laughs> you can see that it goes on for another five feet before there is actually a five foot wide passageway that leads to the West. Now, does it lead to the west? Right at the point that, where you're at. So it starts going west in there or go one more square? Nope, you're, you've already gone the square. So right there. Okay, so I need to shorten this line. No, 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 no. You, you, right where oh, you I have it. I did have it, it right. Yep, yeah, yeah, right, right where you have it is where it turns west. So it goes like five, so. Yeah, five feet from the, from the eastern passageway north. There is a passageway to the west, which is what you did. Does this corridor continue north or just entirely turn? It, it, no, it continues north. I should tell you that too, yeah. So there's a five-foot-wide oh, passageway that breaks okay. away to the left. So I'm going to draw a little smart line. There. Okay, so is that yeah. correct? That's correct. Um, your lantern light shows that it opens up into a much larger chamber than the chambers that you've been seeing to the east. Um, there is... Stinks of mold. Okay, let me just get a bead on this guy. All right, so... Uh, your lantern light shows that you are in a rectangular chamber uh, that is 
uh, larger north to south than it is east to west. So it is precisely 5, 10, 15, 20, 25. It is 25 feet north to south, and it is 15 feet east to west. You are coming in directly in the middle of the eastern wall. Okay. So middle of the eastern wall, 25 feet north to south. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that looking good so far? Uh, 5, 10, 15, 20. I think you're a little too too large there, Ted. 5, Am 10, I? 15, 20, 20. It's 25, oh, 25 feet. feet. 25 feet. Uh, yeah. I did 25 feet in each direction. Yeah. Oh, the humanity. <laughs> Easily solved with this smart tool, though, I got to say. Do, do, do. All right. 25. Even goblins make mistakes sometimes. That's right. I would also tell okay. another key thing that I would try to convey immediately so that Ted doesn't do a lot of work is if there are any doors or egresses out of the room. So far, there haven't been in any of the rooms that are described, but that would definitely be a key thing that you would want to convey immediately. There is a set of, of tapestries, Ted, that actually um, cover the entire southern wall. And okay. uh, there are small little alcoves that uh, semi like semicircular niches that hold melted candle stubs that are dotting the western and eastern sides. So for viewers um, out there, okay. you can probably see that there are, um, on my actual, the actual answer key, like the actual map, there is, um, they've drawn in those semicircular niches and there's a specific amount, like seven total. Now I'm looking at that and I'm like, that's going to be kind of a pain in the ass to sort of tell Ted where those are. And so I look at the description, uh, the room description, and I see that the niches themselves, um, it doesn't really matter how many there are. It just matters that they hold melted candle stubs. So as long as I convey that information, um, I don't feel the need to give Ted that precise information. So I just could just tell him there are certain circular niches. And if Ted really wants to know, like if they've got some sort of plan for using those niches in some sort of clever manner, then yeah, I'll, I'll give it to him. Otherwise, I'll just be like, draw them in, you know, just go for it. That's Where Ted are these it. tapestries you speak of? The tapestries are lining the uh, only the um, entire southern wall, and there are three of them. Oh, southern. Mm -hmm. Let's, uh, let me just... Uh delete what i was doing there a tapestry on the southern wall you say indeed three tapestries three tapestries all depicting different things one of them has yellow mold which would kill your character but we'll decide that you've you've seen it and step keep away however the middle oh. one ted you can see that there is light emanating from underneath one of the tapestries ah light you say mm -hmm. so here might be a good um uh good time to grab an arrow, um, which can sometimes be a little bit, uh, if I'm, you know, I can't deal with it right now, for example, but I want to mark it and I don't want to write light behind this tapestry. I'll just put an arrow and then I'll remember later that there's something about that tapestry. Point of but in this case, I think I am going to lift the tapestry aside and look and see what's behind there. Uh, so you can see that there is actually a door behind the tapestry and there is light 
emanating from the um, uh, from the space between the door and the ground. And the the so it is um, so Ted is actually putting like a straight up door. You could actually mark this as like a technically it's a concealed door. So in the classic modules, they would actually have like right. a C. You know, it's not technically it's a secret secret door. Um, but you could you could certainly put an S down, whatever, you know, it could be whatever you want. But if you wanted to remember for future reference that this was not something that was readily seen or accessible, you would probably want to mark this with a C for concealed or an S for secret. Um, and uh, this is one of those points where um, smart players, which uh, which Ted is and um, David is particularly keen on uh, picking up on this sort of stuff where they can look at a map. And if I say that there are three tapestries on the southern wall only, and you're looking at this map that you guys drew from scratch, you could see that there is a uh, appears to be negative space right here, right? Um, that that you know that would be that should be a very attractive to players to spend some time, spend a couple turns trying to figure out if there's something else going on here, right? And that's all derived based upon the fact that you created this map, which is what's really fun about it, right? Um, so. Uh, well, I'm going to use the the self created agency for success here, John, and I'm going to I'm going to open that door. Open the door, okay? So it's locked. But Ted, your guy is now magically a thief and has a skeleton key. So congratulations! All right. Can so I'll set down my lantern. I'll open the uh, the lock and I'll open the door, and I'll map immediately map what's on the other side. Nice. Okay. So. In a room where, uh, so you would basically assume that almost all dungeon rooms are dark, right? First of all, so always kind of keep right. that in mind when you're talking about lantern light. But however, also you also need to be aware specifically in key descriptions where there is light available in the room already when they come in, because that usually means that all aspects of the room will be immediately visible to the person. And you need to convey that to the players immediately, because that's a huge change in the environment. Right, like darkness yeah. is ever present in the dungeon. It provides most of the danger. Um, if you're walking into a room where you know there's going to be light, that needs to be the very first thing that you convey to the players. This room is lit by this. That's the first thing you say, right? So this room is lit by Ted. <laughs> um, it is a uh, a white marble idol actually that's cupping a brazier in its hands, and there is um, uh, uh, white smokeless flames are actually emanating from the brazier. So it's not like orange flame, it's like white flame. And that's what's providing this light that is uh, illuminating the entire chamber. So where is this uh, idol located? So the idol is on the far side of the room. The room itself is a hemisphere. Okay, so uh, so first of, first of all, there is a five foot long corridor that then opens, excuse me, then opens up into the room. Um, ah, okay. The room itself is 15 feet wide and the northern wall which you are entering in from the middle of is flat okay and then from that right. flat northern wall is a perfect a perfect hemisphere uh, okay let me try this again here okay so i've got a five foot corridor and a 15 foot wide room you said 15 foot wide and the northern wall is flat Right, like so, and then it, it goes. It it is a twenty foot wide uh, north to south, but it's a perfect hemisphere from point to point on the northern wall. Twenty. Wait, how wide is it? It's fifteen feet wide. Fifteen feet wide, but the but the the highest, um, like the furthest point to the south is twenty feet. So uh, you're going to draw. Door. 
Yeah. So no, no, no. From the from the um, entrance to the room. Okay. Well, we've got a problem hmm? because I don't have enough room there to. Do I, I, I'm sorry. It's my bad. I'm, I'm thinking ten foot squares as well. <laughs> ten feet. Ten feet. Okay. Yeah. That makes tons more sense uh, based on my math. Okay. So sorry. now this is one of the cool things about Miro is if I do this right. I should be able to use the smart tool to actually draw a hemisphere and it'll make it pretty good. Once again, everything that Ted is doing, you can just do by hand and call the day. Hey, look at that. And that looks great. And then if I want to adjust the shape of that, which I probably do, I can kind of grab a few key anchor points, you know, and, uh, yep. He can make that as perfect uh, as he wants. What he did initially is just, is just fine. Like a hundred percent fine. Um, and, uh, but Ted is just doing is he's just adding nodes to the, at, at any point and just rounding it out. Yeah. Um, and he's got his statue exactly in the right place. So you can see there that, that this is an oddly shaped room. So you want to give the basic dimensions like the, at the furthest points. And then what I do is I give Ted like a basic shape, just so he's got that in his head. He's probably going to have to ask me more questions, but at least he has in his head hemisphere from the very start. So he kind of knows what he's working with. You know what I mean? Right. Um, so the kind of questions I would ask as a player are, is the, ceiling flat or is it also like hemispherical or is the floor flat or you know mm -hmm. is this carved or is it uh you know laid dressed stone is it Arcantian stone right uh that kind of thing yep and as you can see here in my key description um it doesn't give me that information so a lot of times you have to just kind of uh, uh lie lie make come up with a, come up with a good <laughs> Uh, you know, also oftentimes, and you guys have probably seen this on my stream, like I'm all about like just being transparent about stuff and I'll just be like, module doesn't tell me, <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't know. You know, it's whatever you want it to be. That's sort of like what I do with the doors. Like they open whatever way you want them to open because no one ever bothers to tell you which way doors open. Um, so whatever is more convenient for you. Anyways. Um, so yeah, this looks like something that you would probably want to interact with. looks like the gemstones, like, so like the eyes are made out of gemstones and the marble idol. Maybe you want to take them. Who knows? I totally um, do, but then I want to get back to mapping. Right. So he he grabs the uh, the gems out of the eyes and probably curses himself for all eternity. But uh, he continues blindly. But he's forward. already a goblin, so how bad can it be? Yeah. So let's just get to the end of this northern corridor, and we'll just kind of call it a day here. So um, you okay. walk you walk back out into the north south corridor, and okay, so you can see that after actually, the you know what, John? Mm -hmm. I've got it. I've got it. Remember, we've got our PC token. Yeah. Right. That is what we should use as our reference. I'm just going to put a corpse right there. That's going to be me because I know I'm going to die soon, right? <laughs> you should tell me how many more feet beyond the square I'm in. Oh, yeah. That's a good plan. They could we could try that. that out next time. Yeah, okay, that's, a good, so that's a good plan. I'm standing here. How many feet ahead of me does this corridor go? So it, it goes another 30 feet at least. However, um, five feet after where you're standing currently it there is another passageway east and appears to mirror the exact same um dimensions as those other square rooms as other square rooms okay mm -hmm. so draw that draw that draw that and then we can go lasso our room again we're gonna oh now, so here's an interesting thing. The, the the lasso has grabbed more than I wanted. Let's try that again. Yeah, we can't see that, but... Yeah, interesting. Um, 
I've still got a lot of learning to do, evidently. I'm going to not lasso things. Uh, so Mort's going to walk to right here and tell me about this room. You said it was... Uh, the exact, it's a mirror, the mirror of all the other rooms to the east. So okay, square so 15 by 15. nothing unusual about it? Uh, no, other than there's different contents, but um, the basic dimensions are all the same. Is it loot? Is it loot? Let's check. Is it loot? You know, I love the loot. Um, there's some stone coffers. Some Those have loot after you die from zombie. Okay. All right. All right. So right. then Mort would move back to here, and you would, again, tell me how many more feet to go and how far yes. my lights see. So, yeah, 5, 10, 15, 20. so the quarter goes on from where you are there for another 20 feet before it opens up into a uh, larger rectangular chamber. Okay. Uh, so you're coming in from the middle of the southern wall of this rectangular chamber. The chamber itself is 20 feet north to south by 15 feet east to west. You're coming in from the middle of the southern side. However, just so you know, there is a passageway that leads west five feet up from the um, southern end of the room. And I think Ted's uh, see what Ted was doing. I think he's on my wavelength. Yeah, I'm having some mapping problems. Don't worry. Uh, it's just it's uh, something about this map you drew is different than other maps, John, and it's given me uh, some agita. Of course, on the on the tutorial. This on the tutorial. tutorial, but you know, hey, man, that's that's life. Yeah. All right, so did I get that bit correct? Yes, you you got it. So, yeah. Uh, so maybe I'll draw a new line right there mm -hmm. and I'll work with this one. And then what I can do is I can connect it like that. If you see that, and then I just grab boink and boink and I got my room. Yeah. It's pretty nice. Yeah. So you can just add those nodes to actually just kind of shape the room around those nodes. Yeah. Um, and in addition, great for like the octagons and the like trapezoids that John's giving me, man, it's great for that. Yeah. That's a, yeah, it can be a major pain when you've got really odd ones like that. Um, and there is uh there is a door that is on the Eastern wall, five feet down from the Northern end. Eastern wall. Five feet down from the northern end. So right there. Yep. And I can tack that on at the end of my description because I know Ted is going to drop a separate object on top of the line. So I know he doesn't need to redraw in order to add right. doors. So I don't mind like tacking that on at the end of the description. Um, yeah. So I think that's probably good enough to give people sort of an idea of what we're like talking about here. Let me sort of zoom out to kind of get the grand scale of what he's done. Um, we've got cave-ins, we've got statues, concealed doors, regular doors, niches, nooks, and a giant rock. Yep. You find a secret door, the whole thing. So obviously you've probably seen elements in Art and Vool that are a lot more complicated than this. I deliberately chose like a very simple sort of layout dungeons just so you can see the yeah. basics. Like Ted said, it can be a lot more complicated when you're drawing like trapezoidal, octagonal. Um, and especially for cavern drawings, it can be... Um, it could be a, a real mess, and we have we we have to real we had to really think about how we wanted to convey information in that level, the druids retreat where it was all natural caverns. Um, so, in situations like that where you have 
very oddly shaped caverns um, or corridors or anything like that where it's like natural stone, where there's like a lot of different verticality and a lot of strange formations and rock formations within given rooms and all that kind of stuff. You need to give the overall dimensions of the room to the mapper and don't don't even bother trying to nail down the nitty-gritty details because it's going to be impossible. Like at that point, it's better just to give them a map that with fog of war and expose it if you really want them to see like the exact details. I can guarantee you, let me actually um, zoom into the Druid's Retreat level here where we had that. So if you take a look at the overall Druid's Retreat level that they've mapped so far, and let me bring up the actual <laughs> Arden Vool map. I don't get to look at this. Yeah, Ted's unfortunately out of the loop here. Let me find it here. Um, now I can't even watch this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Skip this part, Ted. Sorry. <laughs> well, I'll get off of it real quick. Um, so you can see here that this main corridor, th this uh, section right here, this triangular crossroads maps to the middle of your screen that you're seeing with the with the main map, right? I'll give it away. It's 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 area eleven. <laughs> so it's at least eleven areas, Ted. Um, I, I'm uh, not surprised. It was a complicated level, but you can see that the way that we did it, and if you've watched these episodes, you probably saw like the techniques we used. Um, it, it's Ted's map is not 100% accurate. It's impossible to be because I could not convey every little nook and cranny, and I, and the the publishers and the writers of this module don't expect you to do that either. They either expect you to actually use this the VTT version without the, the numbers on it um, for your players, or they just expect you to, to, to convey the information generally. So what I tried to do as far as um, conveying directions is to give it based upon loose angles, right? right? We, we were making jokes about using protractors and stuff like that, but it helped me. Wasn't if you joke. have a, we if had you, a protractor. Yeah, if, you, if you've got a protractor, I know it sounds super geeky and like it's an extra level of complication. It's really not though, it really helps. If you've got a good sense of angles, like if you can sort of visualize angles, then, um, then just uh, give your players that information. So instead of saying, because um, you want to be, because these corridors sort of go in all sorts of different directions, you can't just simply say it goes northeast. You need to say it sort of goes northeast at like a 10 degree angle. It gives you a little bit more information just so that it's a relative amount of accuracy. Um, but I told Ted whenever he walked into that triangular chamber, I said it's vaguely triangular. I remember saying that. And it's vaguely 20 feet wide on a side, right? But um, but Ted basically got the spirit of it. And his what he drew is very similar to what is actually on the real map here. But you can see it doesn't perfectly line up. But there's nothing that Ted has drawn here. And a lot of this was Matt, actually, as well. Um, That's uh, true. A lot of this... None of what Ted has drawn here, even though it is not 100% accurate, I would say it's probably about 75 to 80, is not going to um, uh, interfere with the comprehension of the level. Like it's not the things aren't 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 going to be screwed up so beyond a point where they're just working on bad information. You know, it's it's accurate enough. Remember, it's just good enough is all you really need. All right. So that that's how you want to go about doing caverns and tunnels and the like. Um, you can afford to be much more meticulous with. Um, with uh complicated drawings like here on level i don't want to give away the level number on the halls of thoth um here <laughs> oh no it's fine john i don't mind uh the debouchement level here is basically a work of art at this point um i think ted you were using this as sort of like your playground to learn miro right so yeah so after i played for a while um with that dungeon i showed you then i started tracing over the old drawing to make 
the new drawing a lot more clear and legible and so on. And, um, you know, again, the best way to learn how to use this is to, for, um, actual, you know, practical, not just, uh, scribbling, but like, I need to figure out how to convey three sarcophaguses in a 15 by 30 room or whatever. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and so it's, it's a little messy because we learned some things about layers that, uh, oh, slightly too late to mm -hmm. have this be nice and neat, yep. but, um, that's, I don't care. That's the point. I imagine if Mort's drawing maps, he's scratched stuff off, he's redrawn it, you know, he's got a cross stuff out and, and, uh, made notes and things like that because his, his perception changes of a space after he's interacted with it, like, Oh, there's a secret door here. I, or, Oh, that quarter I didn't notice right away or whatever, you know? So, yeah. And I think it's actually much more aesthetically appealing to see a map that's been worked over a few times. Right. Absolutely. It's sort yeah. of like having like the character sheet with the coffee stains on it, you know, or looking over old character sheets from when you were a kid. It's just, there's something about like, this has been heavily played that just lends a sort of sense of like, yeah, man, yeah. like we did that. Like, like look what Ted drew here. You know what I mean? Like this is badass. Like this, this was created simply from sharing minds together, like sharing imaginations together. And it just sort of like, look, look what appears on the page. You know, you did that. You created that. You know what I mean? Purely from the words that I spoke, you know, and it is, it's basically a facsimile of what has been published in this work that they have no knowledge of, that they've never seen. And there's an immense yeah. amount of satisfaction that's derived from that. I mean, look at this thing. I mean, it's gorgeous. Plus, Ted added in all this fucking cool shit with the, with the chasm, uh, <laughs> the chasm. Oh, I got, uh, I got a little autistic there. Yeah. 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 Let me, let me, let me, uh, zoom into that. Hell yeah, man. Look at that stuff right there. Little 3D action going on. Um, Bridge of Kazakhstan got going on there. But you can see here, um, there are remnants of what used to be the Albert map. So if we go to the debouchement itself, yeah, it was so crude. <laughs> it, it, anything that you actually see that's in light blue was actually me taking a screenshot of what we had in Albert and importing it into Miro. And then Ted was drawing yeah. the black lines to trace on top. But you can see where the word debouche yeah. was written. That was from Albert. And then Ted rewrote um, with the text tool debouchement there. Um, but, uh, actually see a lot of arrows on this level and color coding. It's another great thing that we've done is color coded certain things. Yeah. Um, you know, arrows to remind us of stuff, the magic mouths down there are little, you know, lips with an MM in them, you know, that kind of thing. So I can certainly jazz things up. Yeah. And the games that I play in person at my local game store too, there have been, some of the players have actually really taken to the mapping as well, which is really cool. Um, and, uh, they they use iPads and they have like mm. just real basic drawing programs. I, I I wish I could recommend some for you, put it in the description below, but I'm sure if you just did a quick search in the app store for it, um, instead of drawing on graph paper because they're all young kids and they <laughs> they're cooler than I am, um, they don't draw on paper. They actually use um uh a, a, a slimmed down version of like a whiteboard app for iPad and actually draw these dungeons. Um, but in one game I was playing Barrow Maze, which was a, a mega dungeon, and I was the mapper. Because no one else had actually done player mapping. And this is what caused them to then, from that point forward, want to player map because they realized how cool it was. Because I'm a cool guy. Um, that's right. But this is... Oh, sweet, uh, John. That's awesome. Yeah, not too bad, right? So this is the, the section of the barrel maze that we explored. And this is using that graph paper that I showed. But it, my point in showing this is to show you that um, this is a worked-over map. This is something that I was constantly yeah. revising and... and um, changing as we, um, as we explored. And, uh, I take, uh, you know, even though the campaign's over, I'm keeping it because I'm, I'm really proud of the work that I did. And I am not an artist. Like 
I'm like, yeah, this is sweet. Um, so, uh, point being, this is a really fun activity to do. It can seem daunting, especially when you're dealing with software. Um, but, uh, my recommendation would be if you want to try out Miro or you want to try out whatever drawing apps are incorporated into your VTT of choice is to find a simple dungeon map, um, and try to copy it, try to draw it on your own using those tools, uh, on a blank sheet of graph graph paper, either by hand or in the VTT, and then get used to those user interfaces. Um, and, uh, uh, that's the best way to learn instead of just staring at a blank page and sort of getting frozen up, uh, just try to copy an existing simple dungeon map. Um, and then, uh, if you're a player, I highly recommend suggesting to your referee that you would like to do that next time and see see what they say. And I'm I almost 100% guarantee that your referee will be into it because it takes a lot of load off of them. Um, some referees uh, really enjoy that kind of prep, and that's really cool. I am not one of those sure. referees. <laughs> I don't. I got too much other crap to do in my life. Um, that I, the the least amount of stuff that I have to do, I always go in that direction and. Um, I do plan to do another video where I, t where I talk about my own process with prepping. I know that's been another thing that's been been requested by a lot of folks, um, but uh, that's a little insight into one of the things that I do is um, uh, people often ask, like, how do I prep a mega dungeon of this size when it's so huge? And I, I shoulder off as much of the burden as I possibly can onto my players. <laughs> they, they don't True. have to do a lot. So, so give them something to do, <laughs> you know, at the start of Arden Hool, I had beautiful brown hair and full head <laughs> and now worked my little fingers to the little nubbins and I'm gray and shriveled. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so I think that's about it. So yeah. Yeah. Um, if you're interested in Miro, uh, it's, it's free. Yeah, if the, the, you can pay more for wider access, but I think for your average uh, tabletop role-playing game enthusiast, you only you get three boards for free, and a board is Huge. all of this. <laughs> That's one board. You get yeah. three for free. Uh, you could put yeah. an entire campaign on one. We have not encountered any lag so far. Knock on wood. But we have a lot of information in, in, in this very small use of the board. Um, and we have seen no lag whatsoever. And we have experienced lag in every other VTT. Um, and we, we have experience with all the majors. We've we played, um, uh, well, I have anyways. Uh, we, Ted, and, Ted and I have experience with Foundry and Roll20 and Owlbear extensively. Ted played there one, was fantasy. one other, wasn't there? We did Fantasy Grounds real briefly when we were doing Adventures yeah, League one time. One. Um, but um, uh, I think I have a little bit more experience than you in that one. But anyways, regardless, if you got one that's your favorite, go for it. But just be aware that when you're doing player mapping, yeah. uh, each individual line takes up RAM. And so you uh, and it's all being shared amongst each other, especially in these browser-based ones. So you have to kind of be careful because the memory will start to kind of catch up with you. Miro seems to be the catch-all solution for us at this time. I'm not saying there isn't, but not a better solution out there. Um, and the oh, this is a key thing. Um, before we sign off, the key thing, which probably is tacit, doesn't need to be said, is that it needs to be collaborative. You need to have software that allows everyone to see what you're doing in real time. Yeah right? There are tons of awesome, awesome dungeon creation software out there like Dungeon Scrawl, Dungeon Draft. I, I can't think of them off the top of my head, but there's so many cool ones, but they're all made for GMs to prep before they show it to the player to create beautiful maps that they then show to their players using Fog of War. Um, there is very little out there that is actually collaborative. 
um, and which is why we're using a software program that is not designed for role-playing games, right? Um, the, but it, it needs to be something that everyone can join up together and be together in the real time and see what the other person is doing, which is why VTTs are so nice to use. It's just that they have very rudimentary and memory limited, uh, drawing tools, which is yeah. why I was saying, like, if you've got programming knowledge, you can make a VTT that's based around <laughs> shared, shared yeah, dungeon mapping. Call. Yeah. It'd be great. Um, Cause they're really meant for you, the player adding a few notes or marks on a background map right that's Correct. a single object very little ram comparatively yeah. and you write you know some fireball here or crap here or whatever yeah and and so a few lines is all it's really meant to do and then by the time i'd gotten halfway through the debouchement level owlbear was like what are you doing to me yeah uh, yeah for those of you who watched the scouring of the shire where we had like numerous tokens on the map it, like it was not feasible i had to stop in the middle of the session and erase the tokens because it, it was so slow yeah. Um, but that's not the priority for these VTTs. Their priority is automation. That's what it's all about for VTTs, yeah. right? Um, is to reduce the amount of math that you have to do. Um, and they do that very, very well, but they are not conducive to, um, uh, to player mapping. But rudimentary, and if it's a small dungeon like the one that I just did with Ted, no problem at all. But if you're doing a mega dungeon like Rappanathic or um, Ardenvul or Barrow Maze, I mean, forget about it. <laughs> you gotta, you're going to have to find a different solution. Um, of course, all things considered, you, what you ideally are doing are sitting around a table with a piece of paper and doing it together because there's nothing uh, that beats that. But that's, that's a lot harder. The old days. That's right. The old days. Okay. So I think that'll do it. Um, I'd really love, uh, both of us would really love to see your comments about uh, solutions yeah. that you found or questions that you have about mapping, but that is how we're doing it. And we are continuing to learn as we go. We, like we said, we are not experts at this. Um, if you have other software that you can recommend, we'd love to take a look at it. Um, and yeah. if you give any of the stuff that we've tried, uh, that we've conveyed here a whirl, uh, let us know how it works for you. Because uh, we think it's a really cool aspect of old school play that has gone long forgotten and should be brought back into the mainstream. So go forth, minions, and do our bidding. <laughs> <laughs> fly, my pretties, fly! That's right. All right, so thanks for tuning in, everybody. I hope you enjoyed this Tack On Effects. Uh, we will be back to our regularly scheduled programming this week as well. So please don't forget to like and subscribe. Please share amongst your friends and uh, hit that bell icon so you can get a notification every time we put up another cool video like this. And uh, until next time, have a great week, everybody. Take care. <laughs>